I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. At The Resident, all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with luxurious British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without The Resident, you might not get to London. And without The Resident, we wouldn't be here on Holyrood Sources. Holyrood Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident. The podcast starts now. Welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. You join me on Wednesday, the 5th of July, for the first of our recess special episodes. At the moment, as I speak to you, Andy McKeever is on a lilo in a swimming pool in the south of France with a beer in his hand. Apparently, he thinks he deserves a holiday or whatever. And Jeff Aberdeen is, well, still adjusting to family life. And so we thought he might want a break. And so at this First opportunity for a little bit of a break. The guys are having a couple of weeks off, but we are obviously still here on Hollywood Sources with you because there is still lots to consider over recess and lots for you to analyze with us. Thank you so much for being with us. I feel like some of you have been here from the start, in which case, thank you. You are amazing. And we so appreciate that more than you could ever know. And I feel like some of you may have just found us recently, in which case, welcome, 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 welcome. At this point, I do just want to mention a couple of little admin bits for you. Now that we're really up and running as a podcast, one of the things is how you can support the podcast. And I 
should say at this point, I am about to talk about money, so sorry if that's awkward or weird or whatever. None of us gets paid for this, and that's fine. That's the way we've decided it. Well, that's the way we want it. But what you can do is you can listen to this podcast without adverts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, at the top of your feed, there's a little option there to pay $4.99 a month. £4.99 a month. And that removes the ads and it puts some money in the bank account of Hollywood sources for, well, what we think could be quite an exciting future, actually. Lots more on that to come. Also, if you subscribe that way, you would be the first to hear of any announcement of any special or any different thing that we want to tell you. If you are paying £4.99 a month, that information will come to you first. So you can do it that way. If you're not listening on Apple Podcasts, then you can go to Acast. The link to that is in the description of this episode. So scroll down, have a little look at the notes that are below the episode, and you can click through to Acast and become an Acast Plus member. The price is exactly the same, £4.99. It removes the ads, it makes you a subscriber and indeed a supporter of the podcast. And that is all reinvested in making the podcast bigger and better in the months ahead. So if you feel you can do that, we'd be very grateful. And I promise it won't just go to waste. I promise you. Thank you for any support you can offer. Don't feel you have to. Instead, you can just sit back, enjoy the ads. Maybe you'll hear something you want to buy or whatever. That's fine. In this first of our special recess episodes, we are going to play some of the highlights of the brilliant guests that we have brought you since we launched the podcast all those many months ago. Lots has happened since then, and we've spoken to lots of brilliant, brilliant people. Just a few episodes in to the launch of our podcast, and we got the exclusive interview in the aftermath of the SNP Leadership Contest with Kate Forbes. I went back in last week for the first time and went back in again on Tuesday. And certainly from my perspective, I believe that the contest has been and gone. We're over the finish line and it's passed. So I'm very happy to pick up where I left it with friends and colleagues last summer. Uh, That's always going to be a two-way street. So... You know, it it remains to be seen whether the hand of friendship, as it were, that I offer out is reciprocated. And inevitably, after a contest, it takes a while for the dust to settle. And, you know, there's sometimes a perception that politicians aren't human. You know, we're as sensitive as anyone else. (laughs) You know, we we feel personal relationships as much as anyone else. Uh, But I'll be going back in. So there might be an element of awkwardness and tension. We had a group meeting last week, and I think that was good for just having those first conversations with people. Obviously, I've not been able to get around everyone, but I hope that I will be able to get around everyone. And, you know, I hope that, that, that any tension or awkwardness will very quickly disappear. Well, there's always going to be more than one reason for decisions that have been taken. And obviously, as a rural constituency MSP, I have a huge interest in in rural affairs and the rural economy. But I do feel that's a particular area where, uh, which is very prominent in the Butte House Agreement. And having already expressed some quite considerable concerns about highly protected marine areas during the contest, it would obviously be extremely difficult to then deliver highly protected marine areas as part of that brief. But of course, 
you know, it's 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 well known that I absolutely loved the finance uh, role. It was a role I felt I could do well. It was a role that I think requires uh, particular insights right now as, you know, with the um, renegotiation of the fiscal framework, obviously finances are stretched. And, and, and lastly, you know, I think it is fair to say that after um, five weeks of a contest in which many things have been said, people would be looking to me to maintain integrity. And obviously, I would seek to support the government in full, whilst obviously trying to hold to perhaps some of the positions that I'd expressed during the campaign uh, around things like the highly protected marine areas. So there's a whole host of different reasons, but my you know, bottom line is that I said during the contest that we're at a crossroads, and I think we are, and I think there's real merit in taking a period out of time, out of government, to do some heavy thinking and some heavy lifting on policy and where Scotland goes next and the nature of Scotland's economy and what the case for independence looks like. And so I will be thoroughly engaged in, in all of that. I just wonder to what extent this contest was a test of your faith. It was a test of how strongly I'm willing to be myself when others are identifying the advantages and the disadvantages inherent in that position. And it's a great question, um, which has sort of stumped me in terms of, I did not feel it a test of my faith at all, funnily enough. I felt it a test for Scotland as to our capacity to debate and disagree well. And the test for me was whether I would quit and step out of the ring or remain, and I chose to stay. And I hope that if nothing else, I managed to change the nature of the debate in a positive way. This is Holyrood Sources. That was Kate Forbes, the exclusive after the SNP leadership contest. Next, I want you to hear from Jean Freeman, who was health secretary in the SNP government during the time of the COVID pandemic. Jean said a lot of interesting things to us, actually. She was a really fascinating listen on the kind of the state of the NHS, how she went about trying to understand how to reform it, and also uh, the current politics as well. I want you to hear... A bit of all of that, actually. Uh, we'll start by listening to her speaking about the Butte House Agreement. This is the agreement between the SNP and the Scottish Greens that involves the Green Party in government. Despite the really quite low number of MSPs, they have ministerial positions. They have a say. They have policy briefs. So we'll start with that, and then you'll hear more from Jean on how she worked as Health Secretary and her own thoughts on what needs to happen with the NHS. The current agreement, the Butte House Agreement, between the SNP and the Green Party probably needs talked through a bit more about exactly what are the um, what are the boundaries of that agreement? What what are they? Because we've got two distinct parties who have um, in the agreement, as I understand it, 
um, agreed to retain their distinctiveness. So let's not blur those lines then. Let's be a bit clearer about where the cooperation is and where it isn't. And where it isn't, that doesn't necessarily undermine where it is, if you follow me. Sorry, it was a, I'm losing myself in that, but you understand what I mean. Uh, because I think otherwise, then we, we risk it being unclear to the, the wider public. And I, I can, you know, I, I, I do not want to end capitalism. Um, and I do think economic growth is critical. Equally, there are aspects of what the Green Party would argue and would want that I would agree with, but I'd also think is challenging to the SNP to think a bit more then about, well, what do you do about the climate and, and energy and all of that? So I, I think, I guess I think we, we need to be clearer about what is the nature of that agreement and and in what way should the parties then continue to be distinctive? Because it's not a coalition like there was when I was a special advisor between Labour and the Lib Dems. It's not the same. Um, it's something different, but I don't think it's widely understood what the something different is. Next, let's have a listen to Jean Freeman, who appeared at the UK COVID inquiry about a week ago at the time of recording. And she said... To the inquiry, there was no plan which could have adequately prepared Scotland for the coronavirus pandemic. Here's what she told us when she spoke to us back on the 5th of April about that time. We made the best decisions that we could with the information we had at the time, at the time that we made those decisions. Was every single one of those decisions the right decision? Possibly not. And we knew at the very outset that we, A, we, none of us had ever dealt with this before, and B, we were bound to make some mistakes. And so in the sense of what Jason has said, which is, with what we know now, would we now, if it happened again, would we now make, would we now close schools? I, I genuinely don't know the answer to that. I think we, what we would not do is automatically do what we did before again. But you have to be able to deal with the information you have at the time. And, and next time, it might not be a coronavirus that behaves very different from the flu virus. It might be another kind of virus. They are sneaky things and they're pretty clever at how they uh, perpetuate themselves. So it might behave, it might be different from coronavirus in how it's transmitted and the harm that it potentially causes, whatever. There's, there's a general view that in all of that, we were making decisions between doing a good thing versus doing a bad thing. It, it just wasn't like that. There, there was no harm-free decision to be made. There was no risk-free decision to be made. It was, it was a series of decisions multiple times in any one day between what is it we need to do that can cause the least harm, carry the least risk, and can we do anything to mitigate any harm that we are causing by making that decision? So it wasn't a nice, can you do a good thing, can you do a bad thing? I wish. It, it just wasn't like that. 
As we record this episode today, the UK is marking 75 years of the existence of the NHS. And the future of the NHS was also something we discussed with former Health Secretary Jean Freeman. Here's her thoughts on what needs to happen, and indeed, what doesn't need to happen to change the NHS. The way forward on this is not simply to keep throwing money at it. Personally, I wouldn't actually start with politicians. I would start with the royal colleges, with the clinical teams, with the janitors. You know, I've got a story about uh, one hospital that I know that was very proud of, um, and and I'm going to tell you a story because I think it's an indicator. It was very proud of what it called its door-to-balloon time. So that's basically how quickly does it treat someone who is having a heart attack. And door-to-balloon time is critical if you want to avoid damage to the heart muscle. Right, so if you're fast, it will. It had the best. I think it still does the best in the UK. It wanted to keep that, and the way it looked at how it it could cut it even further was that it involved everyone who came into contact with that patient from the point that they came out the ambulance to the point when they were in the theatre. So that included the hospital receptionists, the janitors, as well as the clinical teams. And they cut their door to balloon time because of an idea that the janitor had, which was about a moving a drinks machine out the way so you got quicker into the lift. That was the Janny. Good on him. He will have helped save more lives. So, and we saw it during COVID. We saw during COVID when we stripped away in health boards all the layers of committees and decision making because we had no choice and we said to the frontline clinical teams, you make the decisions that are right to make for yourselves and your patients to keep you all safe. Take this the right way, nothing bad happened because you didn't have to write a policy paper and go to 22 different committees to get a decision. I care passionately about the NHS. I've got a long family history of it, not least myself, many, many years ago working in it. And I am convinced, utterly convinced, that we can make this better without more shed loads of money. We can do this better. Just to say at this point, if you want to hear from our guest in full, you can. These episodes are still available. The joy of Hollywood Sources is you hear from these people at length, in conversation, for at least 40 minutes, although some of them do stray a little bit over that, for which we apologise. But you get detail that you don't normally get from politicians. You get insights that they normally can't offer in a 10-second clip on the news or whatever. So all of these episodes are still available for you to scroll back and have a little listen to. Next, I want you to hear from Ruth Davidson, the former leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, who we spoke to back in mid-April. And she was really interesting on leading an opposition in Scotland. And more than that, leading an opposition that was conservative opposition, which, as you know, is basically unheard of, really. She also discussed with us the sympathy that she feels for Hamza Yusuf, given the fact that he took over in such a time of crisis. She talked about preparing for First Minister's questions and how to challenge Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond, both with different strengths and weaknesses. She discusses memories of the independence referendum in 2014 and also the future of the Scottish Parliament. If we're honest, what 
Henry McLeish resigned for was, was pretty small beer and nobody really thought that reflected badly on the Parliament. It was a mistake. He was a decent man that fell on his sword. And was he really up to the job? Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, he he did the right thing and, and everybody could, could kind of uh, send that away. I, th- I think the huge media circus that was around first the Salmon trial and, and then was around the um, committee investigation and everything in the Parliament really blew up the sense that um, there was something wrong or something bad had happened, uh, even if there wasn't any sort of, of, of conviction to it. Um, I, I think if you know we start seeing other people that signed off, um, that were office holders in the SNP that signed off accounts, like, for example, the, for the leader at the time, um, never mind the leader's husband, who was also the chief executive and the treasurer of the party. Um, if we start seeing these people being brought in for questioning under arrest, then, uh, you know, it, it becomes a much changed picture. Uh, and why this is important is because part of the Scottish exceptionalism that the SNP have pushed and pushed hard for years since before they became into to government and while in government is that Scotland is better than this dirty place called Westminster. And Westminster is the cipher for England in this. It's, it's part of the dog whistle. Uh, and if, if it becomes... Uh, known that that actually bad things happen, not just in Holyrood, but also to the SNP in Holyrood. And they're all as bad as each other and a plague on everybody's house and politics is just this horrible, corrupt place. Then actually that dents one of the planks that that they've spent 20 years sort of nailing down. In the same way as when people ask about kind of different election campaigns or different voting and, you know, all the rest of it. And, you you know, I'm, I'm not a complex person. I will fight on the battlefield in front of me um, and I will put in the best shift that I can for for myself and my team. Um, And in a sense, it kind of doesn't matter who the opponent is um, because you've just you've just got to you've got to win or at least do as credibly as as you can. Uh, And at FMQs, it's more about what is the context of the FMQ. Uh, so do you have something that's killer? Can you execute it? Or has something, I mean, this is probably more weeks rather than not, has something absolutely catastrophic happened to uh, the party down south that is going to be thrown back at you, even if it has no relevance to whatever you're talking about, and you're going to get your bum kicked from, from here to the edge of the chamber and back? Um, I think I had a, I had a, a, rough, uh, I had a rough start, um, I think I got spread around the walls by Salmond a lot when I started. Uh, I, I think if it was a boxing match, you know, there, it's not even like there was going to be a towel thrown in. It would have just been a puddle, a bleeding puddle mess on the floor. Um, but I, I think it toughened me up. Um, and I think I, I think I got, I hope I got better at it, um, both with him and with her. And I mean, I think the thing that he did that was better to a degree than her is he had slightly more tools in his toolkit um, in that he he could use humour, which she very rarely tried. And that can be devastating. You know, you, you know, making people laugh at you is is devastating. Um, and, and, you know, that that's a, you know, that's a, a, a score win easy. That's that's, you know, ding ding. Uh, but she didn't do that. I think what she was better than him at was that she could do compassion and empathy when required, which he slightly struggled with. 
you know, I, I loved Better Together. I loved working cross-party. And I know people on the, the other side that loved working with Greens and people of no party affiliation on the Yes campaign and, and all the rest of it. I, I really did enjoy that collaborative politics. But I, I think, Jeff, the, the thing that was so surprising to me was we went into Better Together with the kind of belief system and the thought that the Tories would help to provide the money and the donors and Labour would provide the boots on the ground and the structure and all these constituencies that we'd not been at the races in in years. And when we got there, there was nothing. There was no Labour apparatus. So they were weighing votes and seats. Um, you know, we thought they were weighing them in seats because they had such a great operation. They had nothing. They had no operation because they didn't need to because they'd always been weighing votes. Uh, and the only two that really had an operation that was worth shouting about was uh, in sort of Helensborough and Western Bartonshire, which is where Jackie Bailey had to fight all the time, uh, and was uh, Jim Murphy and Eastwood. They were the only two constituencies in the country that had a proper functioning campaigning wing and arm that knew what they were doing, and we couldn't believe it. And, and that was one of the things that gave me confidence coming out of uh, 2014, that we can absolutely overtake Labour. Because up until then, I thought, you know, I grew up in a, a Scotland where Labour were unassailable. You know, it was it was a hegemony. Like, I, I, I thought there was no way we could overtake them. And, and then I came out of that and I was like, <laughs> come on, lads, game is on. These, these, these guys have got nothing. They've got nothing. Like, we can absolutely take them. And if I hadn't seen behind the curtain, I, I don't think I would have had the belief and I wouldn't have been able to lead the campaign that we did. And I wouldn't have believed, I don't think I would have allocated resources in the way that I did. I, don't, I think so many decisions would have changed if I hadn't seen what I'd seen about how hollowed out the Scottish Labour Party was. That is former Scottish Conservative leader and now Times radio broadcaster, Ruth Davidson. Lots more still to come on our Best of the Guests episode for you today, including the former First Ministers, Alex Salmond and Jack McConnell. Now, if you've paid your 4 you will not hear ads. If you haven't, then you will. And whatever happens, well, you'll hear a little note from our sponsor, The Resident Hotels. Stay with us. We're right back. 
news that the resident in Liverpool, the resident in Victoria, and the resident in Kensington are all now ranked in the top 10% of hotels worldwide by TripAdvisor. Basically, what we're saying is, if you need a hotel in Liverpool or in London, book the resident. Thank you so much for being with us on Hollywood Sources today. We are doing a best of the guests special for you. You've already heard from Ruth Davidson, from Gene Freeman and from Kate Forbes exclusively as well. Still to come, Jack McConnell and Alex Salmond. Right now, though, the leader of Scottish Labour, here's Anna Sarwar. Relationships really matter and, you know, we can have the best model uh, you like and take the devolution example as a, as a perfect example of that you can have the best devolution model in the world if you have bad faith actors on either side or both sides it's not going to work and same with any business or any organization you can have the best structures in the world if you can't get the people to get on with each other and be able to work with each other it's not going to work and I think the most important thing in terms of my relationship with Kira is we have a mutual respect for each other we both genuinely like each other and we both enjoy being in each other's company and we both are willing to listen to both ideas but also criticisms from each other. I think that's really, really important. I'm really, really open with him. He knows from day one, I've set this frame with him, that we are, we are in a linked relationship in the sense that he needs Scottish Labour to do better in order to be the Prime Minister across the UK. But he also knows that from two years ago, I said, I need UK Labour to be better so I can persuade people in Scotland that a UK government is possible and this isn't as good as it gets and we aren't stuck with perpetual Tory governments. And I think that open dialogue is really important. I think the other point, going on the vision point, the way I think we, are, we both completely understand in terms of this next phase of uh, our, our respective leaderships is Keir, similar to I, had a job of work to do in terms of changing the Labour Party and getting credibility back. He then had a job of work to do, as I did, in terms of being a credible opposition uh, and being able to expose the failures of either a UK Tory government or a Scottish SNP government. Uh, that's obviously been complicated by the change of leadership a few times over the course in terms of the UK. But what he's acutely aware of now is this next phase, between now and the next general election, we have to set out what that positive alternative is and I think he's done that around the, the five missions. I think the next part of the five missions, though, is how do you turn those missions into ideas that people can say, this is what I get if I vote Labour? There's already a, a, a few areas where there's a, a clear difference in approach between both the Scottish party and the, and the UK party. And I can honestly, hand in heart, tell you that, that there, has, there has never been, uh, oh, you can't do this, or why are you doing this? Uh, often it's it's the other way around of okay let's think about the thinking of that is that something we could do similar across the UK and vice versa that's something we could do similar uh, in Scotland uh, so so the, so there will be that that freedom uh, there is no no doubt about that I think the only bit that's going to be really different is right now you have a Scotland office under a UK Tory government that feels like a Scotland office that's there to be the eyes and ears and spy on Scotland whereas a Scotland office under a Labour government will be seen as a vehicle to champion Scotland, champion the cause of Scotland, champion the economy of Scotland and champion the social issues in Scotland. And that is going to be a massive, massive shift. And, and, and it's, it's hard to emphasize how significant that is um, when you think about 
the, the current politics we have right now. And again, thinking about 2026, this is something I've said to Keir directly a number of times, is I want you to win. I want you to be Prime Minister. But actually, what's really important for me is I need to be going into the election in 2026 with the midterm of a popular Labour government, not the midterm of an unpopular Labour government. And therefore, what we are both working on is not just how we get to that election, how we win it, but actually, particularly those first two years, what does a delivery plan for Scotland look like and feel like so people going into the election in 2026 can see what change Labour is on the track of delivering, delivered some of it already, of course, but on track of delivering so they can believe that when Labour makes you know, a, a policy offer come 2026, they know what they're going to get because there's a demonstration of some of that change already through a Labour government across the UK. So that, that for me, is a, is, a, is a huge, huge priority. It was so interesting to hear how it feels like decisions in the Parliament that impact on the islands are taken by central belt lovies making decisions about islanders when they have no understanding of their life, no understanding how the island operates, and no understanding of, the, of their needs, both socially and economically. And the HBMA policy is a prime example of that, but not the only example of that. The ferry scandal being the other prime example. Part of it is making sure we've got good representation and good candidates in those constituencies that are the voice for those communities to the Labour Party, not the Labour Party's voice to those communities. We're only going to win voters if we're out of the Parliament, talking to people, learning from their experiences, and then projecting their experiences in the Parliament, and then more importantly, in our own policy uh, making. So that, that's the second part, is being there more often and being visible there. Then the third part, and this is the most important part because the talking is the easy bit, the action is the harder bit, is what are these solutions? That's partly around the community wind farms, onshore wind, offshore wind, hydrogen, and making sure they have a stake in that, and that means more investment locally. It's partly around greater tourism, so how do we get more cruise ships, for example, being able to dock in the Western Isles for the day coming up, particularly from the US, because so much, so much of the US population has a heritage link to Scotland that they want to come trace those routes, see those routes, and spend money here. How do we, how do we get more of that tourism? Third, how do we maximise the onshore wind, offshore wind, hydrogen with community investment? so that they can get more spending, for example, on their social care on the island, anti-poverty projects on the island, economic development on the island, and then and then sort the ferries issue out once and for all. And for me, the long-term fix of the ferry scandal is not us trying to procure two ferries at a time and then making a mess of it either at Ferguson's or exporting the work to Poland or to, or to Turkey. It's how do we package up a long-term 15-year plan on a new fleet of ferries that allows people within the UK to bid for those contracts and deliver on those contracts and so they're willing to make the investments in their own dockyards. Anna Sarwar there. Next then, let's do some double trouble, shall we? We'll do Jack McConnell first, followed by Alex Salmond. It's a First Minister special. I had a conversation with um, with Tony Blair, actually, three months before the 2003 election. Um, I, I had been in the position of First Minister for about 15 months at that point. I thought we were doing some really interesting things, but I, I was struggling to break through. Uh, the polls were not really um, uh, seeing a, uh, a gap between ourselves and um, what was then John Swinney's SNP and David McCletchie was a ferocious opponent in the in the Conservatives. Um, and I was really worried about the 2003 election. I, I, I could see that, um, you know, this could be uh, uh, un perhaps unexpected, but, but a serious knockback for the Scottish Labour Party. And... Uh, interestingly, I spoke to, to, to Tony about it, and he said, you know, what if you're the leader, what you need to do is, in the preparations for an election campaign, by all means, listen to everybody else and take all their advice. But at some point, you have to sit down on your own and just make decisions about what you stand for and what the party is then going to stand for, and then go out and campaign on that. Because if you don't believe it, um, and it's not in your heart... Uh, and you haven't found the right way to articulate it, then you're not going to uh, you're not going to succeed. And 
Um, that was in February 2003. Um, and I, I did exactly that. You know, I, I, I remember the day that I wrote the introduction to the manifesto myself, one of the few things, just on a blank piece of paper, wrote the thing out myself. It was described by a friend as the clearest description of what I personally stood for that I had, I had ever written. Um, I went into the campaign. I ignored all the advice to talk about the record and what we'd achieved over the previous four years and talked almost solely about what I wanted to do over the next four years as me as First Minister with my team. And uh, and, and ultimately, we were successful. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that's, that's the critical thing. If you're going to be First Minister, and in particular if you're going to win an election as, as leader... You have to be your own person and you have to know what you stand for and you have to articulate that and people have to believe that you've got a vision for the country for the following four or five years that they can buy into. That they can buy into, says Jack McConnell. We also asked him about his Fresh Talent initiative, which was about attracting people to Scotland to work from other countries. Here he is explaining more. We set out the vision. I put it in the manifesto. People told me not to in 2003 because it would be too controversial. We did it won the election and uh, and then we filled out the detail. We went to work at the Home Office and over a year we worked out the detail of a two-year visa for anybody who studied in Scotland to stay on afterwards and settle with a family, maybe get a job, get their kids into school and see if they like living here and what they wanted to stay. Um, and it did help turn around that population decline and I think, you know, Scotland's population has been pretty solid, uh, uh, pretty solid ever since, but it also helped our economy. And the key things about that were, first of all, we thought it through in advance. We didn't announce it publicly until it was ready. Secondly, we negotiated it positively with the Home Office, and it meant that it was particularly David Blunkett. I spoke to him about this the other day, actually. David Blunkett uh, and I had a good relationship, and we worked it out in detail and managed to persuade others to go with it. And then thirdly, we thought about how we would implement it. Well, this is this is this is a good. A few people could learn from this in Scottish government today. We thought about how we would implement it. We we engaged with. I remember, for example, meeting um, Lithuanians and Poles in Lanarkshire and in Inverness to talk about how they might welcome people who came and be part of the infrastructure of this. We spoke to the school uh, managers across the Scottish education authorities about how to manage this into the schools. We spoke to housing. Um, you know, we, we, we thought about how it would actually work in practice. Um, and then we implemented it. And I think that's a big lesson that's needed for today. But yes, I would agree, we need more regionalisation of immigration policy across the UK, and that includes uh, for Scotland. Um, we need more targeted uh, incentives for people to come and live and work in certain areas, uh, not just in Scotland. And the one-size-fits-all immigration policy is not working. Uh, and I'm quite happy for people to be hard on this topic because they're struggling locally in some parts of the country. But other parts of uh, the UK, including in Scotland, there's a need for, the, for, for more talent. Um, and uh, any sensible UK government should be open to that, in my view. Out of interest, Jack, it's, it's good to good to kind of get this this sort of advice on the podcast. Do you do you keep in touch with first ministers, either present or former? I like the idea of you all being in a WhatsApp group together in some ways. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, just thought I'd check. I think that would be a terrible idea. That would be just an awful idea. Um, there were uh, well, uh, um, oh, what what did I say about that? I mean, I. I, did, I Interestingly, <laughs> interestingly, I did get an email from Henry um, a couple of weeks ago in response to a new initiative by Reform Scotland to, to have a 
debate on decentralisation in Scotland. Henry's keen to get involved in that, so we had an exchange. First time for a wee while, so that was nice. Nice. Um, um, I used to actually talk to Nicola quite often. Um, you know, uh, we had quite a quite a, a decent working relationship. Um, uh, actually, even back when I was first minister, and she was effectively leader of the opposition in the parliament because um, Alex Salmond was was still in London. Um, and we would talk occasionally, you know, I briefed her occasionally, confidentially. Um, and when she became First Minister, we would speak occasionally. She was very kind to me around about the announcement of the um, Scotland winning the Commonwealth Games for Glasgow back in 2007, um, both in the chamber and at the, the day of the announcement in uh, Glasgow. She invited me very much to be part of the... Um, the announcement and and thank me for all that we'd done to, to, to make that a success. So I you know I, I, I her and I had a good relationship. It kind of fell apart a bit during COVID. Mm. Um, I was very critical of the school closures during COVID, and as we all know, Nicola's not that keen on criticism. Um, and I think so. I think that's why things have gone a bit quiet on that score. But. Um, uh, I'm always happy to talk to any of them, but I wouldn't want to be in a WhatsApp group with them. (laughs) Imagine the memes. Goodness me. That would drive me crazy. (laughs) Next then, let's turn to, well, frankly, newsmaking machine, Alex Salmond, who is now the leader of the Alaba Party in Scotland, of course was SNP leader and First Minister. First of all, let's hear his thoughts on the current troubles facing the SNP. We spoke to him shortly after Nicola Sturgeon had been arrested and then released without charge. Nicola Sturgeon would have suspended Nicola Sturgeon under these circumstances, no question about that. Um, Alec, do you think that the bar for suspending people from the SNP is too low? And by that I am getting at, should Nicola Sturgeon be suspended at this point? Well, I'm not going to uh, uh, interfere in the disciplinary processes of another party, so I'm afraid Hamza's going to have to... uh, is going to have to solve that one for himself. Uh, I mean, it's going to be no point in me giving him advice because he certainly wouldn't take it. So, uh, <laughs> the uh, but I mean, I know what I would do, and I know what Nicola Sturgeon would have done uh, if, with Nicola Sturgeon if uh, they had uh, been other people in other circumstances. But uh, you know, Hamza's going to. Have to work. You're suggesting you, you would you would no, have I'm not suge- I'm not suggesting anything of the sort. I, I'm, suge- I'm, I'm suggesting what Nicholas Sturgeon would have suspended Nicholas Sturgeon under these circumstances. No question about that. But look, what uh, what Hamza decides to do with the internal discipline of the, another political party and not the one I lead is a matter for Hamza. And there has to be a realization of the extent of the problem. I mean, you know, the, the SNP as a political party has a you know is facing. A potential, uh, I was going to say extinction event. Maybe that's a bit uh, a bit uh, alarming. But uh, you know, if you don't change course, <laughs> then you know that is the sort of that's that's where it's heading. Because the trouble in politics, you know, momentum works two ways. It can work in your favour very substantially. It can also, you know, reverse momentum is equally compelling, and they have to shift the narrative. The narrative of this now is that the SNP find it difficulty running a tap in the Scottish Parliament, is they're embarked on confrontational issues with the Scottish population, which are causing significant damage to, to these pop, to these groups in society, but more so to the SNP's reputation. Uh, there is a real underlying feeling that key public services are not being run as they should be run. 
Uh, and that uh, there is also the general feeling, I mean, I don't, wouldn't describe it as complacency because people must be concerned. Uh, but the idea that this is somehow just kind of midterm blues and everything's going to settle itself if yeah. you don't do something about it. Now, hopefully, but, you know, after a few weeks in the job, Hamza will uh, will find the... Uh, the, uh, the so you think it's you think it's savable, salvageable? It's not irreparably damaged by Nicola Sturgeon's leadership and the chaos. That's no, and there's no insoluble political problem. Uh, but the first essential ingredient is to realise the full extent of what the problem is. When the, the yeah. SNP's reputation, mean, its loyalty, generational loyalty, took thirty years and more to build up. Mm. It, it doesn't take thirty years to knock it down. And obviously, Jeff couldn't let his former boss get off the podcast without spilling a secret or two. The background very quickly is that we were uh, on our way from Invergordon to uh, Sky, And we had uh, myself in the front of this helicopter, uh, Alec in the back with uh, a young man called Paul Tongieri, uh, who's a great guy, but was quite, you know, a, a young intern at the time uh, with the party. And he had a fear of flying. And Alec was winding up on this, you know, on the uh, radio, uh, uh, said, oh, it looks a bit dodgy, this and all the rest of it. And then he said, oh, Jonathan, Jonathan was the name of the 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 uh, the pilot. He says, oh, the, the door's flying open. Uh, and of course, Paul was having an absolute panic attack. Poor guy, very unfair. Anyway, following week, <clears throat> last week of the campaign, we're going from Kilmarnock in the helicopter again to Peebles for a campaign event with Christine Graham. And this time, I think it's just uh, uh, Alec, me in the front, and Alec in the back, uh, and Jonathan, this uh, helicopter pilot. And uh, uh, about halfway through the journey, I just heard on the radio tonight, uh, Jonathan, uh, the, the door actually has swung open sudden. Uh, <laughs> and we, we, had, we had to do an emergency landing in the southern uplands, the hills. I'm not joking, this is absolutely genuine. Uh, and he had to turn all the rotors off. This is a serious safety episode. And I just remember, you know, Christine Graham trying to get in touch with me. And I said, we're just on our way, we've got delayed. Um, and whilst there's these sheep coming up to us at the top of this hill, literally coming up to us today, I, looked at her, I thought, unbelievable, this is ridiculous. No, 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 I was totally calm. Try, 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 try to work out, trying to work out the worst variety of sheep uh, it was in the, in the land of mules. On this episode alone, then, you've heard from two former First Ministers, a couple of leaders of opposition parties, somebody who was attempting to become First Minister and didn't quite make it. And those are just some of the guests that we have had on Holyrood Sources so far since our launch, all the way back right at the end of February. 24th of February was our first episode in the run-up to that SNP leadership campaign and contest. There's so much more that we have yet to come. Honestly, I can't even tell you. We've been planning. We've been pl- the WhatsApp group is buzzing. Andy nearly dropped his phone in the pool. I think Jeff's probably covered in baby vomit at this point. Who on earth knows? We've got so much more to come. We're so glad you're there. Thank you for finding us. If this is the first episode you've ever heard, I hope you'll stick around. And if you've been here from the start, thank you. There's a lot more to come. Make sure you listen to every episode this summer. You won't want to miss a thing. Thank you so much. We'll speak to you again next week.